How many of you have ever played uh, the game or the activity where you take a baseball bat and do this and then you twirl around, what, like five times? How many have done that? Anybody done it recently? Okay. If you haven't done it, it's something. Have you done it recently? Anybody? Okay. Uh, we'll ask somebody who's done it recently. Okay. I was going to get a bat up here and do it, but I thought it might be kind of a hazard and I don't want to get sued. So, uh, what's your name? Laura. Laura, stand up. Stand up, Laura. So you did the bat spin around thing, and then when you spin around five times, when you try to walk somewhere, what happens? You feel dizzy and kind of like don't go in a straight path. Did you fall down? Uh, no, but he did. Okay, why, why don't you stand up? Why don't you stand up? What's your first name? Nate. Nate. Okay, Nate, what was it like to fall down after feeling dizzy? I don't know. Just lost your foot and just couldn't walk. So when you got off spinning off the bat, what did you see? The ground. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) it's on the ground. All right, thanks, Nate. Thanks for being a good sport. That was not a setup. I haven't talked to her ever before. (laughs) All right. So we know, and again, if you haven't done that, we all know what it's like to feel dizzy. I don't need two microphones. All right. We all know what it's like to feel dizzy. And you all know, you know, when you, I, I can still remember when I first did that when I was a kid in high school in our high school youth group, the line all of a sudden doesn't become straight anymore and the floor starts doing this. And you feel really disoriented. And you, it's, it's funny and it's embarrassing, but the only way to walk along that straight line is if somebody were to grab you and kind of stand you up along there. But it's a very disorienting feeling. And it's not something uh, I even want to do anymore because I don't like feeling this anymore. It's the old age. I mean, old, I'm 50, but inner ear, whatever it is. Some of you biology majors would understand that. But the point is this. It seems like God loves doing that to us. He loves spinning us around and disorienting us, not for the sake of him having a fun laughing time, but what, what I think what, but for the sake of that, we're already disoriented, and he wants us to get us oriented. We just have it flip-flopped. We think disoriented is oriented, and oriented is disoriented. So there's all these times where, where what happens to us is we, something happens, or God says something, or we engage God in some way, and we feel way out of balance because we've had our balance meter set a certain way that's not even God's way. And we're going to look at that this morning. Last week, we looked at uh, Mary, and if you were here last week, we talked about and I picked this picture that a Catholic priest friend of mine gave me, the Mary with her open hands, and Mary really, really, really disoriented when an angel tells her, hey, by the way, you little 14-year-old girl, you're going to be pregnant, and it's the Holy Spirit's going to be the father of the child, so to speak, and, and, and she was disoriented. But yet she responded with this, let it be unto me as you have said. And I talked about this open-handedness that she has, and again, if you can get past some of the uh, some of your preconceptions about the superstition issues of Mary, any picture you see of Mary most likely will have her with open hands, and that's the posture. That's the reason. I'm going to be open and not in control. And in light of that, I actually wanted to read a couple emails I got last week because this was interesting. This is about Mary. We're going to talk about Joseph today, so we'll get to Joe in a second here, but we're going to talk about Mary right now. All right? This was interesting. I got two emails, and I'm going to read parts of both of them about Mary. I wanted to talk to you after the service, but you were tied up. I just wanted you to know that the closing total surrender thing was right in my face. A couple years ago, I read a book, and the author suggested if you have a hard time mentally surrendering to God, you can make up ownership deeds, assigning ownership of your possessions to God. I thought it was a pretty cool idea, but was too afraid to do it. Well, I thought about it off and on for a couple of years, a couple of years, 
And about 10 to 12 weeks ago, I got serious about it, and I realized that material things are not my problem. My problem is giving control of my life to God, kind of open hands. So about three weeks ago, I got some official-looking certificates and made certificates declaring God to be the owner of my house, my cars, my musical instruments, my bank account, my abilities, my writing ability, my mental, emotional, spiritual, and physical life. I printed them off, and they looked great and very official. Then I did not sign them. <laughs> hearing, hearing the closing of your message Sunday really hit me between the eyes. I'll be signing them later today. So thanks for speaking the truth um, to my life and my ego. Um, and he, I actually asked him for one of them. Where's Dave? Just stand up, Dave. Dave, Dave, Dave. Dave's back there. He's playing bass today. Dave's actually just visiting. He's a missionary to Native American Indians in Arizona. Friend, really good friend, but Jeremy Clark, our, uh, the guy leading worship, and uh, he has a hat on this week, but he's got to have the Mohawk last week, so if you're kind of wondering who is that guy up there, that's who it was. It's him. Anyway. And he said, I was, it's, what a coincidence, he said, that I was visiting last Sunday, and God actually hit me tonight. This is one of his certificates, and I thought it was kind of cool. This, this is one where he gives the ownership of his spiritual, physical, mental, and emotional life to God. He has a whole set of them with him, uh, his car, his musical instruments, his ministry, his bank account, I mean, everything, and then he signed them off. So I'm not, I'm not saying everybody has to do this, but I thought it was kind of a cool, interesting way in the struggle he had with actually putting his name down and saying, yes, God, I, I, this, these do belong to you now. So that was one email I got that was, I, I was really encur- it, it was encouraging to me and actually kind of challenging to me about am I willing to kind of have, would I sign over those kind of things um, to God? And then another email I got was from someone else, uh, a young mom in the congregation, I appreciated your sermon Sunday. What you said hit close to home regarding a change I believe God, is, God has for me. It was good to be reminded that Mary was confused and disturbed. I'd be focusing more on a quick agreement, which humbled me a little. It helped me see that I'm holding tighter than I thought to some of my dreams and expectations and assumptions. It was good to be reminded of both Mary's humanness and her obedience and the reminder to expect to ask questions of God. It's funny that I hear one directive from him, then want to go and talk with all sorts of people to sort of how to make sense of what happened, rather than bringing my questions back to him. So, you know, reality is every one of us can relate to Mary in that way, the struggle with letting go of our lives. And, and this is where I said last week, Mary is a hero. Heroine, maybe is the proper word. She should be for all of us. She's a hero. The Bible esteems her greatly. We don't worship her. We don't pray to her. But she's, the Bible says we should esteem her greatly. But today we're going to look at Joseph. And so we're going to uh, go to the next slide here. Joseph, uh, maybe you didn't know this. Joseph never has one quoted word in the Bible. So I don't know, what, we don't know why that is, but it's really interesting. Joseph, again, was the earthly father of Jesus, not the physical father of Jesus. Matthew writes about this, and we're assuming that Matthew would have known James, who was a full son of Mary and Joseph, one of Jesus' half-brothers. So maybe Matthew talked to James and said, hey, James, tell us, what did your dad tell you about how he came to understand that his wife, that your mom was pregnant with Jesus and it was the Holy Spirit? So we're assuming that Matthew was giving, you know, probably picked this up in conversation either with Joseph himself or with James, you know, one of Joseph's sons. So it's interesting to kind of think through what was going on here. So as we look at the, let's look at this um, Matthew chapter 1, uh, I'll just read it out here. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. Again, Matthew is writing primarily to a Jew- Jewish readership. He wrote his book, his gospel, was addressing Jewish people who would have understand the Jewishness 
of Jesus and the Messiah issue from the Jewish Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, all right? Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph, but before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her fiancé, was a righteous man, did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. She will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message to the prophet. Now, this is Matthew now narrating again. Look, the virgin will conceive, and he's quoting from Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She'll give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife. But he did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born, and Joseph named him Jesus. All right? I'm going to just hit on a couple of the phrases and kind of explain the context here. And we're going to look at Joseph's incredible disorientation um, and kind of find places, my guess, where all of us are going to connect with Joseph in this story. So I want you to do your best here to try to think about what Joseph's life was like, all right? Okay, Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. All right, here's, in, in that culture, you know, the uh, old King James would call it betrothed. You know, betrothed, he was engaged. In that culture, engagement was kind of, there was a ceremony of engagement. And there were certain lingo, you know, according to the law of Moses, I give myself to you, blah, 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 blah. And there was this kind of, there was this, uh, just like our marriage ceremonies, they had, they had a betrothal seminar, ceremony. Mary would have been 13 or 14. Joseph, 16 to 19. We don't know exactly. Most likely, it was an arranged marriage. They probably knew each other, but in that culture, in that part of Israel at the time, the culture was more about arranged marriages, even though we would have known her, all right? So they have this ceremony, and once the ceremony is completed, they are as good as married, except they are not to have sexual relations until they actually get married, all right? And um, so that's, that's what this means here. So Mary was betrothed to Joseph. They had a kind of a legal, religious legal contract. And so Joseph... They engaged, and so Mary and Joseph look forward to marriage, and um, this is what was going on at that time. So the Jewish people would have understood, okay, this was a contract they had. There was something that was a, they were supposed to be together. And in those days, you could, if you broke off an engagement, it was the similar aspect as like divorce. And, and according to Jewish law, you could, you could divorce your wife or your betrothed for things like uh, walking around with her hair unloosed, uh, spinning in the street, that was a, a reason for divorce. Speaking badly about your future in-laws in front of the in-laws and in front of your future husband. I mean, all these things you could divorce your wife for. And then, of course, adultery was a reason, you know, when you're, if she has sex outside of that relationship, you can divorce her for that. So there were only certain ways you could even get out of an engagement. All right. So... Keeping that kind of, and, and think about, here's Joseph, 16, 17-year-old guy. He's excited about this. They have this betrothal ceremony. Somewhere along the line, then, the angel tells Mary what's going on, and she's going to be pregnant. Then, we know from the other Gospels that Mary 
once she finds this out, she has not told Joseph yet. She goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth for three months. Elizabeth was the, then to be the mother of John the Baptist. All right? So the assumption is pretty clear from Scripture that Mary didn't tell Joseph before she left. Either way, it doesn't make a whole lot of difference. But uh, So Joseph's excited, and then Mary comes back, and obviously he starts noticing. Something either looks different about her physically, and who knows if she pulls him aside and says, I'm pregnant. And you're Joseph, and you're like, what? What, what are you feeling if you're Joseph right then? You know you weren't the guy. And she starts rambling on about an angel and the Holy Spirit and the Messiah, and, and all you're stuck on is she's pregnant. And it wasn't me. I mean, disoriented times about five right there. Because this is who he's betrothed to, and this is who he's supposed to marry. And, but now, boy, she, if she did this, I can't, I can't even trust her. And I thought, I, you know, what do I do? I mean, this was no... It, it was no easy thing for Joseph to have heard from anybody. I mean, here Mary tells him this, so Joseph had to be disoriented. Next one. But we're also told that Joseph was a righteous man. All right, some versions say he was a good man. But Matthew uses that term intentionally because the Jewish people in that day were obsessed with being righteous people. Uh, the Hebrew term there is tzaddik, and they were obsessed with being, they wanted to be called, I'm a tzaddik, I'm a righteous person. Because a righteous person was somebody who was, did whatever, they conformed themselves to the law of God. They handled their relationships well. They were honorable to God and to others. They were good in the biggest sense of good. So Joseph wasn't just like, it, you know, Matthew's not going to say Joseph's a good guy. No, he's saying Joseph was known as a good, solid man of integrity and spiritual vitality as a 17-year-old. He was a, and so what do good people do? Well, good religious people, when they found out somebody's pregnant and the assumption is it was an adultery, what should a good religious person do? So the really religious Jew would have said, well, a good religious person, when they find out you're betrothed or your wife is pregnant or you think it's been adultery, according to the law in Deuteronomy, you can have her stoned. Somehow you can do anything you want to to expose her shame because she has shamed you and shamed God. Therefore, what religious people should do, righteous people should do, is you should expose that. But see, what Matthew's doing here, he's playing with the Jewish mindset because he's trying to help them understand that righteous really means different than what they think. Righteous doesn't mean you do all the right things and avoid all the wrong things as a Christian. Righteous doesn't mean you have the right kind of bumper stickers and avoid the wrong kind of bumper stickers. Righteous doesn't mean that you just show up on Sunday on church and you make sure you fill in all the blanks correctly of your life. But what Matthew's trying to help us see is that Joseph was a righteous man in the eyes of God. Not in the eyes of man. Not, not in a religious sense, but in a genuine sense. So here is he is a righteous man. What does it, but now he's a righteous man with a real big problem. Because what do you do? I mean, he's not going to expose her. And the Bible actually says he decided to divorce her quietly. Now, in that culture, divorcing her quietly meant he had to have at least two witnesses, and he had to give her this signed legal document 
that would say, I'm divorcing you. But it wasn't a publicly shaming thing. By law and by religious prescription, he could have shamed her. But Joseph, because he was a good, righteous man in the God side of sense, didn't do that. So maybe redefines for us what righteous means, because righteous means kind of responsive to God, not so much religiously upright. Now, next phrase. This is my favorite phrase of the whole passage, because it says, as he considered this, said he was going to divorce her quietly, as he considered this, and then what happens next is the angel appears. But the word, as he considered this, it makes it sound like this. Hmm, what should I do? The word here in the original language has the same root word as our word anger and passion. So it wasn't just Losa was considering this. He was considering this. What to do? I mean, raise your hand. How many of you in the last two months have had a night where you've woke up kind of anxious and tossed and turned? Anybody? Tossed and Okay. Take that, multiply it a few times, and that's Joseph. That's considering this. He wasn't just, hmm, what should I do? It was like, I don't know what to do. I mean, I, the law tells me to do this. I love her. I don't want to, but I can't do this. But she's pregnant. And she tells me this stupid story about angels. And I don't, I don't, she's only 13. She's a peasant. She can't be the one that God's going to. So he's not just considering like, you know, the sculptor of the thinker. He's wrestling. There's passion going on there. Not unlike anything not unlike stuff that you and I might feel when we toss and turn at night or have anxious walking around during the day and trying to figure out, what am, I, what am I supposed to do? That's really what this means. As he was trying to figure out what he was supposed to do, an angel shows up in his dream and says, the angel tells him in his dream, no, this Mary's telling the truth. Now let me back up for a second. It was interesting, just this morning on the radio driving to church, I'll always flip on some radio station. And for some reason, I like to hear other pastors preach on the way to church. I'm not looking for ideas. I've already got my notes already done. But this particular pastor, and I think he was well-intentioned and well-hearted, but the very part I listened to said, these kind of things, um, you know, people speaking in other tongues or prophetic dreams or visions, those don't happen today. And, I, and again, I... I'm sure the guy's well-intentioned. I'm sure he has a good heart toward God. But I just say, I significantly disagree with that statement because the Bible is full of men and women who've had dreams and visions and supernatural speaking from God to them. And why would God say, okay, all these ordinary people had this special supernatural interaction with God. I'm not going to let any of you have that. You just got to figure it out on your own. No, God was showing us how he deals with ordinary people. So the Bible is a record of his dealings with ordinary people. So God speaking through dreams is not uh, a past tense thing. It's a present tense reality. Yes, we have to be careful. Yes, we have to kind of process through. Yes, we have to bounce it off godly, wise people and understand what God might be saying and may not be saying. And not every dream you have is a God-interpretable dream or whatever. But we do believe God speaks through ways that are outside of our uh, rational kind of mentality. All right, so that's enough on that right now. So God tells him in a dream. Now, go to the next slide here. Here's my big issue here. I'm, I'm going to be consultant to God right now, okay? Some of us are really good at that. I'm really, really good at that. I'm really good at telling God how to, how to, 
how he should have done things, all right? Here's the order of what happened. First thing happened, Mary tells, Gabriel tells Mary she's going to be pregnant. Then Mary tells Joseph that she's pregnant. Three, Joseph decides to break the engagement. Four, Angel tells Joseph that Mary is telling the truth. Five, Joseph takes Mary as his wife. If I were giving God advice, and I would charge him a pretty hefty fee, here's what I would suggest. God, can you move number four up, up there? Okay, you tell, Gabriel tells Mary. It doesn't have to be Gabriel, but some other angel God. Can't you tell Joseph like that night too? Now tell me, now listen, doesn't that make sense? Because then there's no breaking of the engagement. There's no struggle. Can you imagine the struggle Mary was feeling when, when she knew Joseph was considering this? Let alone the, the struggle Joseph was... God, God, you could have eliminated quite a bit of struggle and sleepless nights for Mary and Joseph and whoever else knew if you would have just kind of rearranged the order. Maybe the angel missed the order and got there late or something. We don't know. <laughs> but think about things in your life right now that you kind of wonder why God doesn't put, rearrange the order that would reduce your struggle. Or God could have done this. Maybe if he wanted to have a little bit of struggle, have the angel tell Joseph, you know, Mary tells Joseph she's pregnant, then like instantaneously let Joseph have a vision. Something. So, you know, there's enough struggle so it feels genuine. Or why couldn't the angel have told them both at the same time? I mean, we have all kinds of effective ways where we really think we could improve God's effectiveness, right? Because the question of the day is, next slide, why does God allow Joseph to struggle? Why do I have to struggle? I don't like struggling. I don't like sleepless nights. I don't like tossing and turning. I don't like having hard conversations. I just want God to tell me what to do previous to any struggle I have to endure. I was talking to a, uh, one of you this week and was talking about just a lot of the pain that's been a part of their life, not their fault. And it's like, why didn't God rearrange the order of things so I could have avoided pain or struggle or difficulty or sleeplessness? Because doesn't God want me to get a good night of sleep? That's my human complaint to God. Can you at least rearrange order? Because you made Joseph go a whole lot when you could have done it better, God. In our minds, better. But yet God thought disorienting Joseph somehow was really, really good for him. Somehow disorienting Mary was really, really good for them because really it wasn't disorienting them. He was orienting them to the way that things ought to be and what faith really looked like and what trust really looked like and what being not in control really looked like. So maybe when Jesus is about to show up in your life, struggle will precede that. Maybe faith means we're people who understand and we struggle really well. Not struggle well for the sake of struggling and just because we're going to be tough people, but struggle because we know what that struggle is all about is God's trying to reorient where our hearts really should be toward him. And whatever you're struggling with now, or you will struggle with, or you will be sleepless over, 
how do you, I mean, do you just wait for a, and some of you are probably thinking, well, I'd be happy if God sent me a dream tonight to give me the answer. But, we, you know, we, we can't always dictate the order. We can't dictate the order. We can ask. And God doesn't take joy in leaving us pain. He doesn't, he doesn't want to see us, like, devastated. But how do we respond to those things? How do we interact with those things? Uh, next one. This was, again, Joseph. So Joseph struggled really well. I mean, Joseph is my hero. Christian Watford was for a few minutes last night, but Joseph is my hero. <laughs> really, I mean, just think about who our heroes are. Okay, let, let those be a, you know, a shadow to the bigger thing. My hero's Joseph. My heroine's Mary. That's the kind, I want to see that. I want to see that kind of strength and aliveness and awakeness inside of me. Because then it says when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel told him to do. So there was a clarity there. And what's interesting, as the story continues in Matthew chapter 1, it was also an angel in a dream that told Joseph, get up, Herod's going to try to kill the baby. And they got up and went to Egypt. And then when they're in Egypt, an angel in a dream told Joseph, get up. And then it says, and Joseph got up and went back. So the angel was, I'm sure Joseph was like, okay, here we go again. What am I supposed to do now? Okay, I'll get up, I'll get up. But Joseph this is one thing I'm impressed about Joseph. He, he responded. Had a dream, angel on this, boom, he got up, he did this. Angel on this, boom, he got up, did this. God told him to do this, he responded, boom. Once he knew it was God, he did it. No, no pausing, no ruminating over it. He got up, he did it. And it's that response, I mean, just like Mary, it's that responsive time that kind of blows us away. Kind of like, well, how do I? And again, this is, not, this is Joseph. He didn't go to seminary. He wasn't ordained. He was probably 17. Probably had a hard time even reading if he even could read. What he knew of the Torah, the law, was probably what was read to him. And he was not an educated, spiritual person in the sense that we often think that. He was an ordinary, pardon the phrase, Joe. <laughs> He was an ordinary Joe, just like I am and just like you are. But God talked to him. God loves talking to ordinary Joes and Marys. You don't have to have any certain pedigree. He will talk to you. You have to be responsive and receptive, and you have to be willing and okay with struggling and not knowing. Because if, if you're demanding God talk to you now and when you need it, God does not really respond to our threats or demands. He responds to people who are willing to wait responsively and listen, and then boom, I'll do whatever he tells me to do. Now, last part of the passage, which I don't want to overlook because it's crucial. This is where the angel says, if she will have a son, you are to name him Jesus. He will save his people and then down lower it says, hey, we'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. I'm not saying Joseph is my hero simply because he obeyed. Yeah, I like that. That's really, I'm, I'm glad he did. But if that's all there is, then, then the Christian life is simply about just be obedient, be obedient, be obedient, be obedient. Why? Well, just because God says so. That doesn't do it for me. It doesn't do it for my kids when I try to tell them. It just because Dad says so. Why are we supposed to be obedient? Why was Joseph 
why do we esteem Joseph and Mary not just for being obedient people, religious people, but obedience because they understood the meaning behind their obedience. And the meaning behind their obedience is they knew God wanted to save, he wanted to rescue, he wanted to make people whole. So we're not obedient for the sake of obedience. We're obedient because God wants to use us to finish the ministry of Jesus to bring wholeness and healing and life to people and to us. And then in the midst of the struggle, read, that, read the last four words of the very bottom there. What does it say? Well, here we go. Ready? God is with us. In the midst of your struggle, God is with you. In the midst of your sleepless, spinning around at night, trying to figure out as you consider what to do with things that are throwing you off, God is with you. I mean, there's, there's times where I was, you know, I have my own share of sleepless nights, and there's times where I get frustrated at my sleeplessness. I get frustrated at my anxiety, and then I'll literally whisper out loud, Jesus, help me. I, I, you're supposed to help me. <laughs> I mean, I'm not being in a demanding way, but it's just like, okay, I, I, what does this look like? Because I want to struggle well, but I don't want to struggle with anxiety where it becomes like faith killing. But God's with you. I, I don't know what you're, I, don't, I know what some of you are struggling with, and they're pretty intense. Others of them may be struggling with lesser things. Some of the greater things will come. And the point is not to struggle well. The point is not to obey well. The point is because it makes us come alive. The point is become, becoming conduits, people that God can use to bring healing and wholeness and life to others and to you. Struggle is part of your wholeness process. And again, I'm not, I'm not saying it's noble. I'm not using that context. Context. It's not noble. It's life-giving. Struggling is life-giving in that sense. And God will not give in to your demands of a life that is devoid of struggle. Because God's, God's bigger goal is to bring life to you and healing to you and wholeness to you and to others through you. He wants you to become fully alive. You want a life, I mean, I'll go back to David's, Dave's uh, little. If you want a life that's within your control, you're not willing to sign these kind of things away to God, then you will have a predictable, controlled life that is generally devoid of any kind of deep joy. Yes, devoid of deep suffering and struggle, but devoid of deep joy. If that's what you want, then you can have that. But it seems like the story of men and women in Scripture is joy, abundant life, and fullness go hand in hand with struggle and wrestling with God and persevering in faith and trusting what God wants you to do. You can't have one without the other. It's kind of this weird equation that God's designed in the human psyche. So as we take communion this morning, uh, when Jesus says, remember me, do this in remembrance of me, what, do you, what, what I'll challenge you to remember today is that he is Emmanuel. He's God with us. He's God with us. He's God in us. So Jesus is with you in your struggle along the way. He's with you. He's with you in a really intimate, kind of powerful way, but we don't always know it. But he's with you. Um, I was telling somebody this week, the, you know the story, the footprints in the sand thing? 
I like that, you know, Jesus was carrying me through life, but sometimes it can sound a little bit hallmarkish and plastic because I, I want to know now that God is with me. I don't want to know five years from now, oh, that's what was happening. I want to know now, and I think you do too. And so as you take communion today, the, the realization is Jesus is with you, and he is inside of you empowering you to do whatever God's asked you to do and to push through the struggle with life and joy and fullness. That's what he wants you to do. So here's how we do it at Exodus. We'll sing a few more songs, uh, worship, and then uh, as soon as we start singing, you're welcome to come on up. There'll be people at the main aisles holding, uh, they'll have bread. They'll offer it to you. You just tear off a piece. Uh, They'll offer you the grape juice. Just dip it in the juice. Don't try to drink out of the cup. Just dip it in. And then typically people will eat it right there. Some people take it back to their seat. It's up to you. Um, and then head on back to your seat while we're still singing. At the same time, in that room over there that says prayer, uh, there are people that pray for you. And they're praying for you about anything. Last week, I know there were a number of you that went back there because you really felt like you needed prayer and, and letting go of control, like Mary did. And it's really the same song, the next verse with Joseph. Because letting go of control and being responsive to God and being really, really strong strugglers and good strugglers, knowing, knowing what God has in front of you. And maybe you just need somebody to encourage you. So you can go back there for that. You can go back there for anything prayer-wise. So let me pray, and then we will uh, take. Jesus, um, you knew Joseph. You knew Mary. Um, and we're grateful for what you learned from them even in an earthly sense about spiritual life because they must have taught you a lot about struggle and about perseverance and about joy. But Jesus, we are grateful that what Scripture says is because the joy set before you, you endured the cross for us. And you set us free so we can be alive and awake and full of joy. And uh, we express our gratitude to you by taking this uh, representation of your body and blood and we say thank you. That's all in your name. Amen.